there's a voice in your head that goes, well, why would anyone let me do this? <laughs> like, what? You get this imposter <laughs> thing. And I, and I think it's healthy because you always have to do something for the first time. But you have to think like somebody's asked you to do this for a reason. And my theory was always like, just let me get my foot in the door. Just, just If I can, uh, by hook or by crook, I'll get my foot in the door and then I'll blow it open. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. Rishi, thanks for being my guest on the fifth episode of It's Not a Straight Line. You know, through your coaching, I've learned a lot about you and I really appreciate everything you've done for me. You're an empathetic listener and, and a great guy and everyone I have the opportunity to recommend uh, that kind of fits with the coaching you do. I've definitely made sure to bring up your name and I know you've had quite an impact at the Smith School of Business as well. It's been amazing, you know, to watch some of the things you've done, like your interview on the social. Uh, but I guess to kick it off, you know, your current role is Associate Director of Master of Management in Artificial Intelligence at the Smith School of Business. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you think of AI and you think of subject matter. If you just brought us back to your time in university, you know, where did you go for undergrad and was there subjects that stood out? Great question. And just, uh, you know, thanks for having me and your kind words. Very, uh, you know, appreciate it. I'm glad if there's any positive impact. But, and, you know, just on your title, like, I love the title. I love a lot of what it implies. And it's funny, I heard um, someone talking about how everybody wants life to be this linear, straight line or this upward growth curve. But if you look at the heartbeat, and you look, you know, what the basics of life is, a uh, is up and down. And, uh, and that that's kind of true for, you know, you're alive when things are going up and down, and that life is rarely that straight line. But so to answer your question, when I did my, I did two undergrad degrees at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, I did a psych, a psychology degree specializing in social psychology, and then I did a sociology degree in sociology of religion, actually. And to tell you that, I'd be missing out on the story if I didn't tell you that I started in pre-med. So like the two years that you needed a prerequisite classes to write the MCAT at the time and apply for med school. And my father is from India and my mother is Canadian of Danish and Scottish origin. But so there was definitely a cultural Indian cultural influence in our house. And basically if you're Asian or Indian, there's like a couple jobs you're allowed to have. And like doctor is at the top of that list. So I was kind of pushed in that direction. I was always a good student in high school um, overall, all around. And I was always really heavily involved in extracurriculars. So I was my class co-president of student council in my final year. I played soccer really competitively. I was in drama and in some of those plays. Some friends of ours had actually created an improv club that we were part of in high school. So I was super busy. And so there, there was always a mix. And I would say the extracurricular part was never really encouraged for me. It was really always more about academics. So I kind of got pushed into this, you know, doing this medicine thing. And I realized pretty quickly on, I played uh, on the men's soccer team as well in university. And you have to maintain a certain average, you know, to be on the team. And I got pulled aside and they, they said to me, like, so what's going on with your marks? Like, you're, you're clearly not dumb, but 
have you thought about your motivation? And I was kind of taken aback. And uh, so I was just at a passing grade in my chemistry class and lab. And I had a 92, I think, in my psychology class at that time. And that was the first time that I thought, like, I don't want to do this. And I've just been put on this path, you know, to the name of your podcast, like this linear path that I'd never even really stopped to think about. And so that was the big, biggest first step I made when I decided to tell my dad I wasn't going to do medicine and that I was going to figure this out on my own. And I obviously like psychology, I was just fascinated with the way people think and the way people interact. And I think, you know, now knowing what I know now, looking back, that was where my strengths lied to. That was what I was interested in. And then, you know, he wasn't too happy to hear that. He didn't speak to me for a while when I when I told him I wasn't going to do medicine. And then I realized I, yeah, I finished my psychology degree. And then the next step, I had taken quite a few sociology classes. And it just like, I remember the first sociology class I ever went to, just the way they talked about the world and, and the, that way of thinking about the broader structures and the t- area that you live in and the intersection of all those things on almost like what I thought of as free will in your life. Of like, because, you know, basically what they were saying is a large part of your part of your life is dictated by where and when you're born and to whom. And this idea sort of captivated me. And from there, I decided to go on my own and finish my sociology degree, specializing in religion. And for me, those two degrees were I was basically getting to study the stuff I was already thinking about every day. And that was a huge shift from just going through the motions of getting through the prerequisites for medicine. And I think intellectually something sparked in me. I had a couple of professors that really challenged me to think in different ways. And I kind of came alive. And that's probably the first time I started thinking for myself about what I wanted to do really with my life. Do you remember when you were kind of put on that track to pre-med? Did this come in in high school at a certain point? Or when, when did you when did you think you were going that way? It was my whole life. It was okay. just sort of like it took me a while to just realize that I wasn't wanted because it had always been there kind of just grooming you to be in this profession. And that was considered for cultural reasons. Um, and it was secure and paid well and all these things. It was just, it was, I was always set on that path. And I had, it was a big deal to step away from, I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, so I was the first one going through all this. And, and most kids in the community or that I knew through the Indian community, you know, are doctors and dentists and surgeons and that's amazing you know those are great that's a great profession nothing against it but for me it wasn't right and it took me a while to realize you know that I needed to think for myself about these things and that moment of you know when they pulled me aside in soccer and and said those two things like you're clearly not dumb but what about your motivation and, and your strengths that you know that has become a through line to what I think about and and the way I, I coach now just to before we go farther into your path, I assume you coach a lot of people from from different or you come across students from different backgrounds. Do you still think that's a big struggle with people from those backgrounds? Or do you think that's changing over time in the last, say, five or 10 years? It's changing slowly. It, it is changing slowly as there's more examples of people uh, from wider representation of Asian backgrounds and other backgrounds. You, you know, you can point to see, I was just watching uh, Mindy Kaling's uh, Never Have I Ever show on Netflix. And so you didn't have examples in Western media of people who were writers and producers and successful in arts and entertainment as much. And, uh, you know, it, and it was just, it was 
not something that you had a lot of examples of. So I think that's helping, but there's still a very traditional mindset. I think that that doesn't go away that easily. You mentioned Mindy Kaling. Is there anybody from, say, the Indian background that you look up to in terms of a leader, if you've met them or not? Is Mindy one of them? Is someone else stand out to you? And I'd be interested in why. Right. Anytime that someone did come up, it was you'd notice it because they were talking about your experience, which you weren't hearing that often. And for me, it was interesting because I mentioned my father's from India and my mother is Canadian, European background. So to the kids I grew up in, I grew up in Saskatchewan, where there's not as much diversity as in Toronto, where I am now. And, you know, the kids basically were like, you're not like, in my mind, I thought of myself as a white kid, basically with dark features and, and hair. And they looked at me, though, as like Indian or other. And these are good friends, but they were just like, you're different. And then if I would go to India, like right away, they look at you and I'm pretty fair skinned overall. And they look at you the way you dress, walk, talk, and they're like, you're not Indian. You're Canadian. So you're kind of you don't fit in perfectly in either because you're a mix of both and neither fully owns you. Uh, so that being said, when like Russell Peters started to you know uh, do well with his comedy, I would joke around about my background too. Humor is something I use a lot in my in my life. But um, anytime someone came up, so whether it was Russell Peters or uh, when Mindy Kaling was playing Kelly on The Office, um, then Aziz Ansari, and now there's Hassan Minhas, and there's a whole bunch of more examples. But I would say more than a single person, I would just notice it and be like, oh, there's someone that's speaking a, a language that you don't hear that often about, you know, just their point of view and. And I'd always actually think, like, how did they negotiate this with their parents? Like, or did they have to go through some of the same things I did, where I've gone through periods where there's a lot of conflict, and I really had to go off and do my thing on my own. And I and I kind of wondered about that, if they were supported or not, or what that battle was like. So you mentioned conflict, and you said, you know, your sp- father didn't speak with you for a period after you decided going away from pre-med and and I think you've gone through that conflict a few times did you Mm -hmm. try and continually rationalize with your parents and saying like hey I know you want me to have a secure life I know you're worried about my financial security but this is what I want or for you was it just like you know what I have to keep focused on what interests me what energizes me and I'm going to let them catch up in their thinking and hope that eventually they approve. Right. I wish that I had been able to articulate myself that well and definitely tried and had the emotional maturity also to not react. But it was conflict. It was fights. And I, I've also been lucky to learn a lot about because my father's an entrepreneur and studying family business and working with some researchers that talk about some of the common issues of being in a family business and a cross-cultural family Um And one of the things I talked about was direct versus indirect communication and that culturally indirect communication is much more common um, in Asian cultures and Indian cultures, specifically where I was from, you know, grew up in Western Canada and I, you know, have this individualistic perspective. And so I would communicate my needs and what I wanted and say, this is not fair and this is why. And I'd have all these points. And only now do I realize that that wasn't the way my father specifically wanted to communicate with me. Theirs is a much more indirect method of getting at things and i was always communicating very directly so that among other reasons led those discussions to not being very fruitful and it typically ended with me just going off and doing what i wanted to do anyways and then eventually waiting to see if they would accept that or not 
but not knowing while I was doing it. Interesting. And so after you did get your two undergrads, what was your first job? Where'd you go from there? One of my first jobs was actually working in elementary schools and high schools with uh, kids with special needs or from uh, backgrounds that, you know, they might have been in an abusive family or something like that. And so I did that for quite a few years in between my studying and then also some of it during. And that led actually because I was thinking about law school. So I, my, you know, my independent thinking, I went to one of the other accepted professions on the list, but I was always really interested in human rights law and, you know, was just working with people. And I got to know the system and how it works and, uh, you know, with these kids in these situations. So that was one of my, that was one of my first jobs. And then I think from there, because I know a bit of your background and you can, you can kind of go into it. You worked for the university. You worked in fundraising for the university at one point and at the same time you started doing things on ctv or you started becoming an entertainment commentator on on the news can you kind of Mm -hmm. just explain to the listeners what you did before you made the change if you will to to toronto for sure so i mean definitely my path is not a straight line at all steve jobs has a quote where he says your life um, want to make sense when you look at it in reverse sometimes and connect the dots in reverse. So, you know, from working with the kids with, you know, special needs and in those types of situations, I, I was thinking about law school and um, I ended up doing, you know, doing business school instead and decided to do my MBA. Like there's a longer version of that story, but, uh, but I was also still doing some acting and stuff like that. And actually this is kind of a funny story. When I was in high school, I, uh, I was in a play and a theater company had approached my dad and said, we'd be interested in having your son be with our theater company. Uh, and my dad told them, I found out this much later, but was like, well, he's, yeah, he's sorry. He's just interested in academics. He's not interested in that. And it was like a paid acting role within a theater group. And I never found out about that. But so it's interesting that I found my way into that on my own anyways, because I always had this artistic or creative side. And in first year university, which I didn't even mention myself and two friends because of her passion for drama and the arts started a film company. And we raised $10,000 by throwing a new year's Eve party. Long story short, we thought we were going to lose our shirts. And I ended up having enough money to start this film company. Um, We started making films for, uh, to enter into film competitions and we did pretty well. And then somebody asked us to film their wedding because we had literally bought this really expensive editing software and for the time like top of the end camera and all this and that turned into a business where through school um, I mentioned other jobs I was doing but we were filming weddings and it ended up where we were like booking a year in advance and so we were making our movies and then we were also running this business so I had kind of found my own way back into that without even knowing you know about that opportunity I mentioned earlier so amidst all this when I finished my second degree the sociology degree it was kind of like one of those what are we going to do with our lives moments. And my one friend from the film company was in law school and he had this thought to go to move Vancouver and act. And so we literally, I quit my job at the school and after final exams in April, I finished my degree and we picked up and moved to Vancouver and spent four or five months there over the summer, taking, you know, got jobs in restaurants and were acting and got, you know, I got to be on some TV shows and movies and as a background 
actor and he was doing some similar stuff and modeling. And so I remember being the first time being on like a, a movie set or a TV set and being like, I'm getting paid to be here. Like, this is so far from when I wanted to be a doctor and that didn't fit. And then I just, this just felt like, holy cow, like you could actually do this. This is amazing. And I really loved it. So I was trying a, a few things and we went traveling and uh, traveled in Asia and Thailand for a while after that. And I ended up coming back and, you know, then was thinking about what's the next phase of my life going to look like. And I thought it was law school. And so fast forward, I mentioned that I ended up doing my MBA instead at Queens here where I work now at Smith. Um, but at the time, I was actually deciding between doing my MBA, I had decided that law school wasn't what I wanted to do and that it was either going to be business because it's pretty dynamic and I already had some experience in that. I um, mentioned my father's entrepreneur, so I grew up around that and I already had my own business. And then there was this artistic side uh, as well. So I was kind of, I, I was thinking about doing Vancouver Film School or the MBA. And I ended up deciding to do the MBA. And even before this, there's a whole other piece of entrepreneurship, which was working with those children in the schools. I kind of got to know the legal system and through some connections I had at the time kind of got this idea that the legal system was overburdened and, and long story short there, they were getting uh, legal offices were being paid a lot to produce affidavits, which is in child protection cases, which basically was a recommendation from a, the social worker on what, uh, you know, the recommendation for what would happen with that child was, would they stay with their parents? Would they go to another family member? Would they, would the province intervene or not? And so basically started a business writing affidavits for the provincial government and got up to the point where it was doing 75 or 80 percent of the provincial government's case files charging a good amount per hour but saving them a lot of money from what they're paying on lawyers and I had just kind of said to them at the time like i have these degrees i have this background i've worked with these kids like if you give me a shot i'd love to try and write these affidavits for you at half the cost and i'm planning to do law school at that time anyway and i actually at one point got on the wait list at mcgill and didn't end up going so lots of steps to this story but um, <laughs> I did that for quite a while and was traveling the world because I could do it remotely and you just had to get the files in uh, a week before the court date and so I was traveling the world I remember Air Canada used to do this I forget what it was it was like $750 a month for the spring pass and you could fly anywhere in North America except for like on Tuesdays and Fridays or something and I was doing this work working for myself and just like traveling the world and it was an amazing time and then eventually that was going well my father had asked me to come back into the family business which I'd worked on and off as a kid growing up and I ended up transitioning to doing that and then after about four or five years of doing that is when I was thinking about either the MBA or film school and then, then that whole you know discussion of kind of potentially inheriting the family business you know was part of the MBA and again I just kind of got sucked back into that world of expectations of what I was supposed to do and kind of got, I think, a little bit lost in that. Um, but then school was kind of my way out of that to, to step away from that and reconsider. And so when I came back from school, it, you know, you know, I've, I've talked about this, it was in a very challenging situation for a bunch of reasons. The businesses weren't in good shape. I'd been gone. And uh, that was when my father and I had a falling out and I unexpectedly left the family business and all of a sudden, like, didn't know I had this MBA. I had been back from it a year. I We had talked about a lot of options, but kind of got thrust into this tough situation. It was one of the hardest years of my life. And it it ended in 
me cutting ties with my family completely. And, uh, well, my brothers, I still spoke to about my parents, not speaking to them for three years. And so during that time, I had six months off to think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life since this one avenue that I had been thinking about was gone. And at the time I had met my girlfriend at Queens and she had just moved to Saskatoon because I was there because of the business stuff and gotten a job. And right as she moved is when this fallout happened. And so all of a sudden she was there because I probably would have left otherwise. And I took six months off to really think about what I wanted to do with my life. And it was, I think in that phase that the, what you you asked about CTV, I know it was a long answer to get back to where what you asked, but that was when I started working at the university. I had approached them, or, they, or pardon me, I'd interviewed for a couple of jobs because I just always had a good experience in education, sort of gravitating towards it. And I didn't get a couple of roles, but they called me back in and said, we liked you and your interview. And for whatever reasons, we went another way. But there's this fundraising opportunity, a four-month contract you'd be interested in. I'd also realized that you could teach with a master's degree and had talked to them about teaching. And they had said, well, you know, that could be a year or further away, everything's full right now. And, you know, we'll keep you in mind. So I, I had accepted this fundraising four month position to give it a try. And then I got a call in like December 15th. And they said, you know, our entrepreneurship and innovation prop, we know you have experience in that area, um, just backed out, like, are you available to start in two weeks? And I was just like, what? Like, yes, 100%. If I can do this, I would love to. And I ended up uh, being able to do it and doing both of those things. And I can go more in depth into what that experience was like. But that was my first step into post-secondary. And uh, I absolutely loved especially the teaching part. And I ended up in a, in a longer term position that I actually pitched to the university on the fundraising side and was teaching during my time there. And so, you know, that was where I sort of started to fall in love with education. And that's where a lot of the conversation I was having with students um, and they were looking for mentorship and some type of coaching or help with their business ideas. And that started to become a natural fit and part of my life and the conversations I was having. And I was finding that they were coming to me and they felt like they could talk to me about those things and that I was able to help people. So that was part of it. And then the CTV stuff happened. Actually, a friend of mine, actually someone I just met like randomly just started talking to at a party in Saskatoon. Turned out that she had just moved from Toronto because she was a new on-air personality on CTV Morning Live in Saskatoon. And we just got to talking and became friends. And one day we were out for wings and she just said, like, do you want to do a segment? And I said, what do you mean? Like, she knew I had a background in acting and different type of stuff. And I had done a lot of public speaking and was pretty comfortable with it. But I said, like, what would I do? And she's like, we'll figure it out and <laughs> make you like, yeah. So the first things I did was I went on the show there and did like gift ideas for guys for Valentine's Day. And then I think I did one for Christmas and I did a couple segments and they were well received. And then they asked me CTV if I would like to be a regular. So I ended up going on an average once a month. And I turned into an entertainment expert. So I would end up talking about everything from sports to politics to current events. And they gave me quite a bit of leeway in terms of what I wanted to talk about. And it would be a mix of those things. And I would go on and get to do that segment. And so I had this phase of my life about two and a half years where I was doing a CTV thing and working and teaching at the University of Saskatchewan back where I'd been a student. The last thing I ever thought I would be doing so. So yeah, there's a really long answer to your question. No, that, that is a great answer. So just so I make sure I have the timeline correct, 
did you work at your father's business for five years and then go do your MBA and then come back? Or was it you did your MBA at Smith, then went back and worked five years for your dad's business? No, I did five years uh, at my parents' business as I transitioned away from my own business that I had been running. And I was kind of new that at some point someone's gonna be like, why isn't a lawyer doing this and governments change every four years. So you knew it was a little bit unstable, but it was a great gig. But so I made this transition. There was five years there. Then I decided to do my MBA. And that was in 2012. And then there's a whole story there where I had actually, you know, the night before the GMAT exam, I tore my Achilles tendon. I had to spend a year um, learning to walk and eventually run and get back into, you know, proper shape again. And I wanted that to be a part of my life, but physical aspects is important to me. And so I put a lot of time to then re-prepare for that exam. So I ended up going to school a year later than I was planning to. But then after that year, I was in Kingston at Queens. And then I spent half the year in Madrid, in Spain, on exchange. And then uh, I came back to Saskatoon, uh, worked a year in the family business. Then that's when the uh, the falling out happened I, um, I'd worked for a year. I went to the World Cup actually in 2014 in Brazil. And wow. while I was away, I, I got an email that said, you're not going to have a job when you get back. And that was sort of the catalyst for all this change to come to six months off where I developed a lot of the tools that I use in coaching right now because I needed a way to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. These were big questions. And I toyed around with a bunch of things. I was reading a bunch of stuff and just thinking about everything. And that's where a lot of that started. And then I spent two and a half years at the U of S and then from keeping in touch at Queens, they let me know about some of the stuff they were doing. And eventually I got an offer to come out and do some teaching and uh, and start working in, in Toronto. And so, yeah, it's been a crazy ride. I think if I can key in on something there, you know, we're obviously eighth week of working from home for many of us that are non-essential workers. And you, mm-hmm. you speak about how many twists and turns your career's taken. And then you bring up, your injury that stopped you for a year no man how have you been dealing with the current pandemic and what's something that you patch pass on to students or people you coach because you've obviously had to learn to go through some pretty damn tough times even Mm -hmm. physically you, you were out for a year right absolutely well in terms of COVID and and you know relying I think it's for students, the people you work with, I think the number one criteria for success in life, I mean, you hear a lot of things that I think it comes down to resilience and that you go through difficult things and that you can come back, and that you can retain a sense of optimism and hope about the future and, and belief in yourself. And I think going through those hard things gave me, gave me a bit of a fire that knowing that I could bounce back from some of the things that I personally went through in life. And so now I would say to people, you know, physical injury is hard, but mental injury, and we all face them through a pandemic situation like this, like the mental stress is there. That that is the most important aspect. And I read a quote that was something to the effect of like, whatever you're feeling right now, just remember that it's temporary. And so I have to remind myself of that perspective, because I've certainly have challenges as part of this and uh, relative to people most affected have to you know remind myself also to have a sense of gratitude for the situation I'm in and how lucky I am in so many ways, but also to acknowledge the hard parts of it and then realize that they will pass also and that you'll get through this and not to make decisions as much as possible when you're in these really emotional, mentally stressed states 
And so right now, because there's no end in sight, it feels like in any given moment, stress is unbearable and there's no out. And so I think it's just bringing yourself back into that place where you can remind yourself that whatever you've gone through in life, whether it was my Achilles, I couldn't walk for three months. Like it's insane to me to use that as an analogy of like that, that part of my tendon largest in the body made this gunshot sound when it snapped. I was playing soccer the night before the GMAT, as I mentioned, but even that healed over time, like no walking for three months on my parents' couch right when I thought I was going off to school uh, to this new phase of my life. And instead I was stuck there getting in the worst shape of my life. But you know, I will learn to walk first on crutches and then uh cane. And then like, it was just amazing to see because, but when you're sitting there, that three months felt like a, an eternity in your mind. And so finding some way to give yourself that perspective, like this isn't forever things heal and time moves forward. And it's not always going to be like this when, it, when it's tough times. Uh, that's good advice. And so you went to, you got your MBA from Queens and Kingston Smith school of business and you then went, were back in Saskatchewan. You found out you weren't going to have a job back at your dad's business. Mm-hmm. And you kept in touch with Smith. And then they're potentially, you know, opening up an opportunity for you here in Toronto. First, mm-hmm. I'm interested in, you know, I don't know how vulnerable you want to get, but h- how did you take that news that it wasn't going to work out with the family business? You even said you didn't speak with your your father or your parents for three years looking back what are the things you you learned from that if anyone was going through a similar situation and can you speak about how you did end up in Toronto at Smith yeah for sure no and I don't mind being vulnerable because I think we all go through very similar things and it's helpful to be honest and share those things and so like I was devastated when that happened not because you know, my dream was, and my dream really wasn't to run the family business. And that was definitely my father's dream. I had other dreams, but the way it happened, you know, and the amount of effort I had been putting in to make things work through challenging times there. And, and I was angry. Like I was so angry and it was something I had to deal with in my life later because it was affecting my close relationships. I, you know, I'm a natural pretty laid back, happy guy, but then there was just this part of me that was just, you know, was just upset about the way everything had turned out. And I think what happened, though, is when I took that time off and away, and then I actually had that time away from not speaking to my parents, that I really, as I had done in smaller versions at other parts of my life, like I mentioned the medicine thing, and then some of the degrees that I did where that, that weren't supportive at the time, um, all of a sudden, it was just like, you know what, I have a, can- I have a blank canvas to work from. And I can only blame myself or credit myself for whatever I make from it going forward. And that, that was when I really just sort of like dove into what can I accomplish and do if I set my mind to it on something that I'm both good at and really passionate about. And then education and teaching, you know, became one of those things for me as well as the, the, the TV stuff that I really enjoyed doing. And so in, in terms of making the transition to, Toronto, I felt like in two and a half years of my career after I left the family business, I was happier. I was making more money than I was previously by a little bit, but it was significant to me because now I was doing it completely on my own terms. And I just wanted as much opportunity to grow and to push the limits of those things. So whether it was, like you mentioned, the social, 
doing that, if that's going from a provincial or local broadcast in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan to the, you know, the country stage and the socials broadcast in Canada and the US. And I think they get about 3 million viewers a week. And I know everyone I know is going to be watching this. So it allowed me to push the limits. And the same with Queens, um, where I had go from going there, I knew the type of school it was and the type of opportunities that would be there and that they would give me. And I just wanted to challenge myself at the highest level possible. And I was having a lot of fun doing it. And I think that when I really came into my own and started to figure out, you know, I, I would say now, like I've got it figured out. My passion at the root of it is helping other people find and connect to theirs. Because of my not straight line, I see so many other people in a similar situation and they just don't even have a way to frame or think about what they would do next or how could they be more happy and fulfilled in their lives. And I had been thinking about that for a long time. And so when it came to Toronto, I used one of my own tools of evaluating the opportunities I had in Saskatoon and then in Toronto. And when it came down to it, to what was important to me, um, which didn't end up being money and title, I took a pay cut and a lower title to come to Queens and restart a little bit in Toronto in a, in a place where I had some friends and contacts. But I came on my own when I came and uh, it, it just was the, it, seemed, it came out to me that that was the obviously right choice for the next step of my personal growth. Um, my partner was from Toronto as well. So that was obviously a big aspect of it that got me even thinking about it, you know, talking to Queens well, you know, that she's from there and what would it look like if there was opportunities here? So all of that said, like actually when I reconnected with my parents, it was a couple of weeks before I left for Toronto and I knocked on the door one day at my parents' house and I had some time away and I had had time to process these things. And I had decided that I didn't want to take that anger and bitterness that I had forward in my life. I didn't want to be running away from anything in my life. I wanted to be running towards my future and opportunity. And I knew that one of the things I had to do almost even selfishly for myself was to go and let go of some of this. So I knocked on the door. My dad answered. He was a little bit flustered um, when he saw me and so can I talk to you? And he said, yeah, come in. And I just kind of explained to them, like, this is what I've been up to for the last three years of my life. And I have this opportunity to go to Toronto and I'm going to do it. And I just, you know, there are certain things I'm not happy about the way they happen, but I don't want to carry this anger and hatred in my heart. And I'm willing to take a step forward if you can respect that. And that was the first time that I think I came as an equal in my father's eyes. And he, and he actually said, I couldn't have been the one to come forward first and it took a lot of courage for you to do that. And that, and, and I respect that. And from there, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised, you know, from him being this, this figure that he'd been in my life. And he said, I, I apologize. I was wrong. Some of the decisions and the things and I didn't trust you and I trusted other people. And there's all sorts of politics that had gone on in the family business, but you know, he said I was wrong and I'd never almost ever heard him say that. And wow. uh, I said, okay, well, let's, take a step forward. And then we had my brothers both ended up at home that day and we had dinner as a family. And, and then I've rebuilt the relationship step-by-step step from there. And uh, yeah. And then I moved out to Toronto and now, you know, my relationship is as good as it's ever been. But I think, you know, it was just that process of showing them that I could be successful on my own terms as my own man, as my own person. And I think they saw that and they were like, okay, you know what? He's okay. Yeah. That's that was brave of you, and that was courageous, and and I I love that you were able to share that story. One thing I wanted to touch on is you were working in like corporate relationships at Smith, and, and you were also teaching 
in the mm-hmm. entrepreneurship program. Yep. And so you were dealing with, I think it was pension funds, investment companies, and trying to figure out how to best position MBA students to enter into that world and vice versa, what those companies were looking for. And then you have this opportunity comes up to be the associate director, master of management in artificial intelligence. And you told me an incredible story about how you leveled up and learned. Uh, And I'm interested now if you could share what your learnings were from that and what your advice would be to other people that want to take on a role that may be feeling that imposter syndrome or may not have the knowledge, you could have easily said, hey, I'm not an expert in machine learning and artificial intelligence, but that was not the approach you took. Yeah, well, you know, you say imposter syndrome, and I've heard some famous uh, people talk about this. Conan O'Brien says, act as if it's normal. You know, he'd be interviewing Barack Obama. I was like, this is crazy. And uh, so many times, every stage of my career that I've tried to do something new that I really want to go after, whether it was teaching a university class for the first time, coming to Queens and doing some of the the things here, going on TV, um, in any of those situations to talk about whatever as as an expert, you know, there's a voice in your head that goes, well, why would anyone let me do this? (laughs) Like, what? You get this imposter thing. And I, and I think it's healthy because you always have to do something for the first time. But you have to think like somebody's asked you to do this for a reason. And my theory was always like, just let me get my foot in the door. Just, just if I can, uh, by hook or by crook, I'll get my foot in the door and then I'll blow it open. Or, or like, you know, if you're scoring goals in soccer, someone might ask, how did you get on the team? But if you're scoring goals, they're not going to take you off. And so that was always kind of my theory is like, just let me get my foot in the door and I'll learn and figure out what I need to do. And so, I mean, when I came to to Queens, I knew that I, I wanted to develop my career and see where it would go. And so, you know, that initial role, so I was actually working with all the programs in the school on the recruiting piece, but I knew that I was looking for another potentially greater challenge. And I think the story you're referring to is, is about the interview. Is, is that the one about the, the question that they asked me? Yeah, just how you, I remember you telling me you'd spend a certain amount of time every day trying to become an expert on the subject. Yeah. So, well, basically, I mean, I was, uh, you know, knowing that I had this interview coming up, I was trying to understand the fundamentals. And one of the things that came up in the first um, interview that I had was the director uh, that I work with closely now, obviously, but asked me, like, can you tell me the basic difference between analytics and AI? And I had been reading about it. And I thought about it and I said, you know what? I think I have an answer, but I'm not 100% confident that it's accurate. And I'd rather not say and be wrong here, but I would love the opportunity to answer that question again if there's a next round. Huh, okay. and, and I was actually going on vacation right after that a, a vacation and, and a work trip, I think. And so I came back in the second round. I just came back. I was in Singapore, I think, and I, I got off the flight and went straight to the interview. So pretty jet lagged, but I had spent the time while I was away. And so it, it came up at the end of the second round of the interview and they said, like, do you have any questions? And I said, I actually don't have a question as much as I would like to try and answer now the question that you asked me last time that I wasn't able to answer. And they said, okay, give it a shot. And so I, I rattled off my best answer that I'd spent some time, you know, getting confident in in its accuracy. And, you know, there's that kind of moment where you're like, was that right? Like, I was pretty confident, but he kind of said, you know what, 
that was mostly correct. Like you said, most of the right words in the right order. And I think that that was me able to demonstrate something more important than knowledge, but the willingness to work hard and show that I had an aptitude and ability to learn quickly and, and invest and care about the position and the subject matter. And, and I am, I've always loved innovation as an area and that's what I've taught in. And so the, the link was actually around innovation and AI and analytics and tech uh, in that area is, you know, just another piece of innovation. I had specialized in design thinking previously, but I, and I think I've, I've realized that in my career, I've been lucky to ride the crest of some of these waves and design thinking was the hottest thing. I was able to study it in school and now working analytics and AI, like I love being at the cutting edge of those types of things. And so one of the most important things, if you are, if you want to be in that, because that's going to change every couple of years, is being willing to put in the work and learn and, and to show people that more than that, you just come with the knowledge already that, you know, I think I was able to demonstrate in that moment, like if you give me a shot, hopefully I've already shown you an example of what I'm going to do if I get this role. I like how you did that. And that that's pretty brave that you said, hey, hey, I don't want to answer that right now. I'd prefer to come back and then approach that again. And it might be a lesson for interviews because I've never even thought of taking that approach. I am interested in how you kind of first got into coaching. And when you're coaching people, what are the biggest things you see or biggest challenges you see when it comes to having resilience? For sure. Well, so getting into coaching was, yeah, a bit of an offshoot of once I started teaching and uh, was doing, it seemed to be going well. I, I got nominated for a teaching award by the students uh, like early on when I started teaching. And so I was getting some feedback from the students and that type of thing that like, this is working. And so a lot of them, you know, in the area I was teaching were still wanting to start their own businesses. And so they started to come for mentorship and you'd end up talking about career and their lives and all these really personal aspects of the decisions they were making. And so then I started to find that as I had friends had seen me go through some of these changes and they might have gone a more linear path. And so people, the odd person who was feeling a little bit lost would just, you know, ask to go for a beer or coffee or whatever and chat. And so I started having more and more conversations between my work and my personal life like this. And I really enjoyed the, the impact that you had there. Like I, I, one of the reasons I made the switch from the private sector to education world is that I think I realized where before whatever talents and skills I had were helping a bottom line, which could be for a good cause. But I, I love the idea that my job was, you know, the currency is people. That, that's what you're investing in. The outcome is someone's career and life. And that's what really caught fire in me. And so the coaching thing, I enjoyed having those conversations. And it was then when I moved out to Toronto that I started to think, you know, maybe I could do this. Like I'd always had this entrepreneurial piece in me. I'd had a couple of businesses before, as I mentioned. And I was like, I think maybe this is also something I should try. But again, imposter syndrome, like who am I? I had taken some courses in executive education at Smith and Queens on uh, high performance coaching and that type of thing. And so I thought, well, let me just work with some friends who need help who had been referred, like as I would get these people who wanted to chat about business or coaching. And I got some feedback from them you know, they were saying, like, this is helping. And I was seeing that they were making changes in their life that were making them happier, similar to what I've been able to do. And I had developed a kind of a tool set through this process. So I just worked with a couple people pro bono for free to get their feedback. And then eventually, the big leap was like, okay, I'm going to charge someone for this. And again, imposter syndrome, and what do you charge them for this? And uh, I sought out and tried to be curious and talk to coaches I knew 
And they were like, no, I think you could do this. And so I just started. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's one of the things that you don't figure it all out, then you start. You, and in my life, you start, and including this role and job I'm in now, and it's like you start and then you figure it out. Of course, you don't want to play with people. You want to give people bad advice, but it's like, I need to start coaching before I come up with the perfect plan and business model for coaching. I just need to be doing it. So at first I did it for free and value tested it and then was able to start figuring out what my rates and stuff like that would be. And so that's how I got into it. And then it just sort of evolved very quickly because I think the happy people, happy customers were referring it. And so I wasn't marketing it or advertising or anything like that. And I had a steady inflow of people and to the point now where it's a pretty regular part of my uh, of my life. And in terms of your question about resilience, so the question I ask is because like I've been in situations in my life where I was killing myself, working so hard. And the question is like, and, and if you're failing at it and you don't love it and you don't enjoy it, like are you failing at the right thing? So I know now that if I'm working my ass off for for teaching or coaching to do a great job or for students. That's a fight worth fighting. And what I think happens is when you lose resilience is when you find yourself failing at something that isn't the fight you should be fighting because it's not what you're invested in personally. It's not what you're passionate about. It's not where your strengths lie. And I think people get demoralized and lost when they start to lose the fight that they shouldn't be fighting in the first place. Because I don't mind failing when I'm going 100% after what I want and I know why I'm doing it. It was losing the battles that I lost and like I ended up never going to law school and, and there were challenges there. And I, eventually I was like, I don't want it that bad. This isn't what I want. And so I, I think that was the, the first thing I'd ask is like, be resilient for the right causes. Don't put punish yourself. Like time is precious. We don't know how much we have in this pandemic. It's a good example of things can change quickly. So I try to focus on like, how are you spending your time? I try to focus on the process of having, do you enjoy what you're doing every day? And, uh, Steve Jobs has a quote about that too, where I think he was saying like, you know, count the days where like out of a week, you know, there's seven days. So it's perfect because there's an odd number. So do you have more good days than bad or vice versa? If you counted on average for a month of what your week looks like. And so I would say the key, one of the key things to resilience is to get that energy and fuel from doing the things that you alone are, are kind of built and talented uh, based on your, your natural uh, abilities and the way you grew up in your environment like are you are you fighting the right fight i re i really like that advice are you fighting the right fight and sometimes i think people hold on to something too long i mean i'm guilty of that where they actually don't want to keep crawling back because something else is calling for them yeah absolutely and i had a professor um, one of those professors that like the for sociology that kind of changed the way I look at the world. And he said, everyone talks about, oh, I've experienced. And when we hire, we hire for experience, as I mentioned. And he said, experience is not a great teacher. Everybody assumes it is, but experience is only a great teacher to great learn. And I was like, oh, that makes sense because I've done it too. I still, you know, fight battles of my life not to repeat some patterns over and over. And it's realizing like, what am I learning from this? failure and you know the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over over and over again expecting a different result and that's why the more i've done coaching the more i'm see that so many people are in that situation where they're kind of coming up against these challenges and things that aren't fulfilling them but 
They just don't have a way, a strategy out of that. And because of convenience, security, all these things that are well-intentioned, we make small sacrifices. And over time, we end up somewhere where we don't recognize because of that. Because time, I would say there's no such thing as a neutral inaction. You know, time will take you, but not making a choice will take you down a path the same way making an active choice will. So you might as well be intentional about where you're going. So true. It makes me think of Jim Carrey too on, um, his dad was an accountant and then I think he got laid off and Jim Carrey always says, I, I could do something that I'm supposed to do, like be an accountant and take, but I could still fail at that. So why don't I try something that I want to go after? Cause I could fail at that anyways. I know I don't have that directly correct, but no, you, for sure. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is sunk costs, which is just the idea of like so many of us try to recoup. We try to recoup the investment we've made into something and we don't ask, am I investing in the right thing as much as like, well, I've been in this job like this long, you know, what I should try and get the value out of it. And really sunk costs, like the idea in business school, when you talk about it is that it's gone. You shouldn't be using it to make your next decision. You should be thinking about opportunity cost of your time. Like what is the next, how important is the next year of your life to you? And, and how many hours of that uh, year are you going to spend working? And how do you define risk? Is it yes. riskier? And, and I was said, um, like, I think entrepreneurs in particular, some people define risk the opposite of everyone else, where it would be riskier to go another day, not being fully content with what I'm doing and not satisfied than it would to be to try something new. And I think I've also hit that point a couple times in life where I'm like, I'm actually risk adverse. I'm just, I'm just uh, defining it the opposite way of a lot of people where the risky thing would not to be not to try something new when I know I'm unhappy with it. Yeah. I remember you saying that when you were on the social and that resonated with me. Uh, I've got one more question for you. I want to hit you with Rishi and then I, I want to just find out, you know, if people are interested in, in finding out where you are in terms of coaching, we can get to that in a second, but for sure. How do you think based on everything you've gone through, your challenges from a family standpoint, your challenges in your career, your pivoting, you know, you've definitely found yourself now. I know you've also thought of writing a book. So whether mm-hmm. it's being an author, doing entertainment updates, working at Smith, being an educator, an entrepreneur, an actor, coach, how are you best positioned going forward based on what you've learned? And you might have mentioned some of the the mantras you have, but is there one thing that stands out to you when you go forward or is there one decision-making tactic you have that you use regularly that you think other people would really benefit from? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and maybe to kind of encapsulate my coaching process is there's three there's three things that I that I look at now that I've learned to evaluate thing opportunities by. And and one is that I realized like much to the point of, you know, your podcast, it's not a straight line. I realize there's never going to be that one thing. Like we're also looking for this one thing that will fulfill us. And most of us are waiting for it to just be there waiting for us. And I realize like there's probably never going to be one thing. It's probably going to be a, a bunch of different things and it's probably going to change. And, and it's probably healthy that it changes and evolves over time. That is a lot of different things. And that's true for me at least. And so realizing that I need to create the opportunities that I want and the life that I want to live. And, and I am actually in the process. COVID has given me a chance to start writing in that book again, which I hadn't gotten to in a while. But those three things are, 
looking at your strengths and understanding like what are you good at what are the things that people have consistently asked you to do uh, the things that you enjoy doing and so I think finding alignment between what you're passionate about and what you're good at is the starting point and it's not a language we've been taught to speak is, is strengths I know for me growing up it was a lot of focus on weaknesses always and, I, and for most of my students whenever I ask I'd say like 75 percent of people say what's more important to focus on your strengths or your weaknesses and they'll say weaknesses and I think well you don't want debilitating weaknesses like it's the difference between Michael Jordan as a baseball player and Michael Jordan as a basketball player and when I started to align like when I stopped trying to be what other people wanted me to be a doctor or when I was in the NBA at Queens, there was all these finance people wanting to be investment bankers. And then I'm trying to compete in these clients. And I'm just like, you know, what am I good at? And I got a little pep talk along the way about like, uh, about that um, from the director of the NBA program. Just like, you're here for certain reasons, the things that you're good at that other people don't have the same skills and like leverage that. So the first thing I, w- I would say is, what are you passionate about and what are you really good at? Have a good understanding of that. And that helps. And then and ask yourself, am I aligned in what I'm doing right now? Because it's like hitting the gas pedal or injecting rocket fuel into your life when you get alignment in that if, you, if you're not fully aligned. And that might be a slight tweak or it could be a major overhaul. So that's the first thing I, I think about is, am I good at this? Am I passionate about this? And the second one then is, what should I be saying no to? And so I think that, it's really important. Like you and I have been through this process, talked about this. I think it's more important to say no to the things that are wrong for you than to always know exactly what the right thing is. And so many people, because of that straight line, like the straight line often implies a destination and people are looking at the destination. But what happens when you don't, you you have a feeling of what you want out of your life, but you don't know what the destination looks like. You don't have that, you're not lucky to have that clarity that some people have of like, this is the one job for me. And so I always say like, it's okay to wander as long as you're wandering in the right direction and not all who wander are lost. That's a, you know, a kind of famous quote. So make room for new positive things in your life by saying no to the things in your life that aren't working for you. And that saying no is actually more powerful in some ways than knowing exactly what you want. And, and, and it creates room for that. So the step, second step is say, what should you be saying no to in your life that you aren't currently? Because that same idea of opportunity costs, like every day that you're filling your time, with something that isn't getting you closer to what you want where you want to be in life. And the other thing is to trust the process and not the destination. So take one right step, do one right thing. What's the smallest thing I can do today, tomorrow, this week, this month to get closer to where I want to be instead of being the neutral quote air quotes, neutral where time is just taking you, your inaction is taking you down a path that's likely different, you know, than what you would do if you were intentional about it. So then step Three is what's important to you and what do you value? And so I use like a weighted decision matrix to to kind of flesh those out. It's like, okay, what's important to me? Is it growth? Is it money? Is it where I live? And it's different for everyone. Is it relationships? Is it it's different for everyone? Some people, it's mentorship and guidance. And it blows me away how different it is every time I work with someone new, how different the things they value are. And once you realize what you value, and the reason it's a weighted matrix is because you know, if I said, you know, Jordan, give me five things that, that are important to you, you can put those five things down, but then I make you choose like, okay, out of a hundred um, percent that you can assign to all these five, like, which is the most important one and what percentage value do you give that? Then it forces you to start thinking about, and I went through this process myself of like, what 
what is really important to me? And then it gives you a criteria to make your decisions upon because otherwise some of the noise, other people's opinions, voices, stability, security, money, titles, all of these things become really loud and noisy in your head. And then that process allows you to actually go, no, actually the most important thing to me is um, quality of life. And then you're able to say, well, these jobs don't give it that to me. So then you can actually say no to those things. And then you can say, are these, is this something I'm good at? And does that line up well? So that those are the three things by which I try to make all my decisions and that I encourage anyone I work with to consider. I'm glad you outlined those three things. They were all, all super helpful and especially no mapping. I remember the weighted matrix. I still use that all the time. Firstly, I want to I thank you, Rishi, for doing this. It's amazing to hear your story. Uh, you've been through a lot and you've pushed through and, and I, I'm just always so impressed with where you are now and the things you're doing and I just wish you so much more success with everything you're doing. If anyone is interested in finding out about your coaching, which you know I said earlier, I highly recommend, or they just want to see what you're posting, whether it's about entrepreneurship or if you have an opinion sometimes on entertainment, what are the main platforms that you kind of stay up to date with or how can people get in touch with you if they are interested in coaching? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and by the way, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's, you know, you, you've been a great person to get to know and work with. And it's an honor to be asked to share your perspective, you know, on things like this uh, as part of your podcast, which I think it's awesome you're doing. So thank you, uh, first of all. Um, and if anybody does want to engage uh, LinkedIn, Rishi Bahari, um, just, you know, normal spelling of my name is, is a great place where you can see some of the professional stuff uh, that I'm up to. And then uh, my own email, if you ever want to reach out at bahari.rishi at gmail.com. Happy to connect there. And then on social media, uh, Instagram is probably one where I'm fairly active. And I believe that's Rishi Toothfly is my handle if anyone wants to just, <laughs> just see the lighter side of what's up. But um, but yeah, no, those are ways that uh, that people can can find me and I'm always happy, you know, just to have a chat with someone to see uh, whether I can be of service or refer, uh, you know, something to them that, that might help if I can. That's awesome. And I'll, I'll include the spelling of your name within the, the heading of the podcast. So appreciate you again doing this and I hope you have an amazing Monday night and let's chat soon. Hopefully we can have a beer soon. Yeah, I would, I would love to do that. If we can't do it in person, then on online works, but I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jordan.